the, the most immediate impact of these horizons that it, it, it very gradually begins to have a shift, create a shift in political opinion in Ireland in which Republicans and revolutionaries, um, you know, they had been a very small kind of fringe minority that was much kind of criticised by mainstream nationalists who were home rulers who wanted a much more moderate settlement. That really begins to change because Britain is forced into a kind of a, a fairly kind of open, openly hostile and military suppression of Ireland. An excerpt from today's guest, whose latest book details Ireland's struggle for independence from a global perspective. Author Fergal McGarry is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. Today's guest is a professor of Irish history at Queen's University, Belfast. He's authored and edited many books, including The Rising, Ireland, Easter, 1916. His latest book is The Irish Revolution, A Global History, and from Belfast, Northern Ireland, author Fergal McGarry joins us now. Fergal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Rob. It's a real pleasure, and uh, we have... uh, a number of listeners in Ireland, actually. So uh, I'm, I'm really thankful to have you come on. This is a, this looks like a great book, and as we talked offline, I'm, I'm part Irish, so I have a, an interest in this. My first question was, Irish independence has been building for a long time, but building prior to the, in, to the 1916 Easter Rising, when Republicans declared an Irish Republic. Do you believe that they did this? They took advantage of the fact that England's attention was drawn away towards uh, towards Europe and World War One. Yeah, I think so. There's a uh, the organization that carried out Easter Rising. We're called the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and they were um, uh, a secret society, a sort of a conspiratorial society that actually went back to the mid 19th century. So they're actually one of the the longer lasting European secret societies. Um, and their motto was England's difficulties, Ireland's opportunity. And so, I mean, if you look at it from the Republican um, perspective, you've really no chance of, of, of defeating a, 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 a occupying power like Britain unless you can find a powerful ally. So it was kind of understood that it was only in time of war and particularly in time of a kind of a, a big international war that Republicans would you know, have a chance to level the field. Um, having said that, something else is going on. If you look at um, the sort of the late 19th and early 20th century history of Ireland, there's a general understanding amongst most Irish nationalists that the way in which self-government will be achieved will be through political means, you know, through getting uh, MPs elected and sending them to Westminster and essentially asking the British government to allow some kind of self-government to happen in Ireland, kind of along the lines of what had happened with, with British dominions around the world, you know, um, Canada and Australia and so on. So so what happens in the First World War is interesting because it's a very big shift in terms of the method by which you get independence because the idea of sort of a, a, a peaceful transition, a sort of a, a peaceful uh, constitutional uh, way of demanding independence sort of goes out the window. And that's something that I think can only really be understood by being rooted specifically in the, the crisis of the First World War. So if you look at, um, you know, something like the Easter Proclamation, the famous proclamation that the rebels make, when they talk about their actions and try and explain them, they, they, they talk about the five or six 
um, rebellions that had happened over the previous centuries. But I think in a lot of ways that's kind of misleading. It, 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 it's really hard to make sense of the Easter Rising without seeing it as directly something that's coming out of the context of the First World War. And so a big shift in the way historians have written about the Easter Rising is to see it almost as a product of the First World War itself. And of course, if you look at other parts of the First World War and other empires, you can see how one of the, the big consequences of the First World War is it, it, it puts empires composed of you know, very, various different nationalities, some of them quite unhappy about the situation. It puts these empires under huge stress and they begin to sort of crack up and break down. So there was a lot of interest internationally in the Easter Rising. Um, Lenin, for example, um, from, from Russia was looking at Ireland. He said the great tragedy of the 1916 rebels is they, is they went too soon. And I, I, and I think he kind of has a point because if you look at what's happening in 1918 and 1919, you know, what, what happens now makes a lot more sense. It's, it's suddenly, you know, national groups everywhere are, are, are seizing the moment to, to, to try and achieve by force of arms something that didn't look, you know, politically feasible in the, in the pre-World War, the pre-war world, which is, of course was a kind of an imperial world and yeah. post first world war you're really into it you're really into the 20th century as you know the world of kind of national self-determination right and that was my uh, follow-up question what was the international impact besides in russia uh, to the easter rising yeah it was interesting i mean the the easter rising is really sort of conceived as an international event in in, in many uh, respects. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of the planning for the Easter Rising actually occurs in America. So it's Irish Republicans in America contacting Germany, and that's how the, the weapons supplies and so on are happening. So it's, so it's very much conceived as an international event. And one of the things I suppose that strike about it is just what an international, what a big impact it makes internationally at the time. Mm. So during Easter week, for example, far larger numbers of uh, Irish um, nationalists die in the First World War in the Western Front. They're almost kind of ignored. And instead, you get the, the Easter Rising becomes this huge um, global story. So the New York Times, just to give one example, it's on the front page of the New York Times almost every day for three weeks. And I think that's partly because it's a really interesting kind of narrative. And it's very, very much actually as it was planned by some of the leading figures involved in the Easter Rising. And most notably, Patrick Pierce, you're looking at people who were poets and cultural nationalists and intellectuals. And they sort of conceived of the Easter Rising as this kind of propaganda of the deed, this kind of spectacular event that would grip not just the attention of people in Ireland, but, but, but global attention. And that's kind of what, what happens. So it's really interesting that it does have that kind of international um, resonance. And I suppose that the, the most immediate impact of the Easter Rising is that it, it, it very gradually begins to have a shift, create a shift in political opinion in Ireland in which Republicans and revolutionaries um, you know, there had been a very small kind of fringe minority that was much kind of criticised by mainstream nationalists who were home rulers who wanted a much more moderate settlement. That really begins to change because Britain is forced into a kind of a, a fairly kind of uh, open, openly hostile and military suppression of Ireland. And mm. that chimes with a growing kind of war weariness and war discontent. And so really Republicans become the anti-war movement. And by the time the war comes to an end, there's been a complete shift of kind of nationalist politics and that the idea of home rule is seen kind of out of date, not sufficient, even something that's kind of tainted by compromise and something that's just pro, pro-British. Um, and by, you know, December 1918, perhaps as we'll discuss um, when the general election takes place, you can see that Irish opinion has completely, nationalist opinion anyway, has shifted from being constitutional nationalists to becoming essentially uh, separatist. And of course, 
similar shifts are happening all across um, much of Europe at this time also. Well, at the close of the war in 1918, Champagne wins the landslide election. Was this a mandate for independence, do you believe? Yeah, it's a good question. People ask, was it a mandate for independence? I think it was. And people also ask, was it a mandate for the use of violence to achieve independence? And I think that's a little bit more difficult to answer. But right. if you look at the 1918 election manifesto from Sinn Féin, it's, it's really interesting because they're very specific about how independence will be achieved. Um, and they say that they will, um, first of all, if they get a majority within Ireland, which is, of course, part of the UK, they will proclaim independence in Ireland. And not just that, but they will set up a kind of a revolutionary assembly, Doyle Aaron, and actually set up a revolutionary government that will begin to to construct a kind of a counter-state throughout Ireland. But they they also um, say that they're going to abstain from Westminster, obviously, which is part of that strategy. But they they also have a more kind of a practical strategy, which is they say, if you give us what, what essentially is a mandate for independence, we'll take that mandate and we'll go to the Paris Peace Conference and, and we'll make the case for Irish independence there. So what's really interesting, I suppose, about the Sinn Féin election manifesto of 1918, well, two things. Firstly, how outwardly looking it is, international strategy. It's really at the heart of how they're thinking about how we win um, independence. It's even at the heart of what they think independence is, which is independence is getting the international community to recognise that a republic has been established and that a republican government um Exists. So that's kind of quite striking. The other thing I think in retrospect was just really interesting because when the Doyle is established in January 1919 with this democratic mandate, that's seen as the beginning of the War of Independence. But if you look at the speeches and the documents from this time, it's clear that most Republicans think that the best chance of winning independence is actually through, through political and propaganda and even kind of revolutionary diplomatic means. So there isn't any sense that vote for us and we will begin another insurrection. In fact, on the contrary, a lot of Republicans, people like Michael Collins and so on, are kind of keen to assure people, look, you know, the Easter Rising happened and it was noble and valiant and so on, but we're not going to go and do that again. We're looking, you know, we're looking for a political mandate. So it's so that changes over the course of 1919. But I think sometimes we retrospectively, we look back at the period and we think that somehow there's an automatic link between getting, um, you know, the sweeping political um, a majority and then a, a guerrilla war just naturally taking place. But actually, there's a, there's a period of about six months in which that gradual slide to violence takes place. And it's partly because of what happens in the Paris um, Peace Conference. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, we travel further back in time to ancient Rome with author Lindsay Powell to discuss his books on the time period. Well, remember, I mean, don't forget, I mean, people like uh, Patton, I mean, were, were students of ancient history. And, and even Gattis, is it in Gattis, that the, 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 the current you know, great general uh, is also a classical scholar. Uh, and in fact, one of the books he carries with him is actually Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. That's next time. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material from the podcast plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. It wasn't brought up. Yeah, so on the one hand, I mean, you can see why Republicans are making the case that if they have a Democratic majority for Republic in Ireland, it sort of gives them the right to independence. 
Um, and, and in fact, their election campaign is kind of interesting because they've got lots of election leaflets with um, drawing attention to what's happening in Poland and Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia and so on. And they're saying basically, you know, these countries are what, what these countries are getting, we're asking for. But of course, the, the crucial difference between Ireland and these countries is that Ireland is part of an empire that hasn't lost the war. And it's, you know, it's, it's clear to anybody, what's clear to everyone that um, England, the US, um, and France in particular are going to draw up the peace war settlement in a way that suits their interests rather than uh, the rhetoric of, of, of Woodrow Wilson, which is, of course is all about the right to national self-determination. But having said that, I think it's really smart. It's really astute and good propaganda, both in terms of winning a majority in Ireland, but also in terms of constructing a really strong international moral case for independence that Republicans can essentially quote Woodrow Wilson's, you know, rhetoric about the importance of self-determination and can basically say we're, we're, we're just asking for you to apply to us the new standards of, of, of um, political powers that should operate in the post-war world, war world. So that's a very effective um, strategy but of course it, it, it meets real politic. Um, mm-hmm. And what you see I think with, with Britain in particular is how they begin to come up with a new kind of language of kind of mandates and so on to, 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 to basically uh, find a new terminology of explaining why, um, although we're in a world in which we respect democracy and national self-determination, the, emp- the British Empire should continue to control territories or at least decide how much political freedom different territories get. And as a result of this, is, is this when the IRA began their, uh, their campaign? Yeah, so there's an interesting speech by President de Valera, again, to the American media. A lot of, the, a lot of this is sort of mediated through American press, in which he says it's, you know, it's, it's clear after a few months into 1919 that Ireland's case isn't going to be heard at the Paris Peace Conference. And de Valera says, well, if our reasonable political case for independence isn't heard, the only option remaining to us is violence. Uh, now, I don't think that's the only reason why the shift to violence occurs. It was happening almost immediately, but 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 it does the closing off of the political route does explain why kind of more and more um, potential is invested in the the, the the military route. And in fact, one of the one of the reasons why the War of Independence is is dated from January 1919 is because on the first day that that the Doyle, the Revolutionary Assembly, first um, meets, you get the shooting of several policemen in a in a in a fairly remote part of um, uh, uh, Ireland. And that's often seen as the beginning of the kind of a, a sort of a, a, a coordinated campaign. But actually, a lot of Republicans were put out by the by the fact that this kind of act of violence, which wasn't mandated from the top, that it's sort of overshadowing this much more important um, choreographed political moment. And if you look at the um, that, that opening day of the Doyle, it's really interesting because it's it's, it's really almost like a spectacle. It's like a performance in front of, I think there's about 300 journalists and they're mostly the foreign press. And you get the reading out of the, the Proclamation of Independence, but it, it's read out in, um, in French, um, uh, in Irish and then French, and then thirdly in English. So it's very much, it's a kind of a propaganda performed um, internationally. So when that political route is closed down, you do have more and more of a slide to guerrilla war. But I think it's largely understood by most Republicans that the, the, the political and the propaganda dimensions will probably always be more important than the military because there's no sense that the IRA have any ability to, to sort of push the British military presence out of Ireland. The strategy is more to, to continue to prolong the conflict and to create um, 
such a level of nuisance and bad publicity for the, for the mm. British government and to mobilize such support abroad that it, it basically puts um, Britain increasingly under pressure. And I mean, I don't want to, to downplay the military end of things because what was done in terms of sustaining a, a, a guerrilla warfare and in terms of you know, the, the professionalization of that was, was, was very impressive in terms of things like intelligence and in, in terms of the, the, um, the evolution of flying columns and so on. It was a very sophisticated military attempt. But I think it was always understood that, that, that the military struggle was just one part of a wider strategy. In that sense, there's some parallels with, with, with how the troubles play out in the late 20th century. Um, it's understood you, you can't militarily defeat a, a power that's, you know, right. much more powerful. No, an event happened uh, a year later in 1920, which was part of that guerrilla war, uh, Bloody Sunday. What was the international, what was that first, first of all, and uh, what was the international reaction? Yeah, so that's Bloody Sunday takes place in November 1920, which is a really interesting month. The War of Independence had been going on for almost two years. Not huge amounts of fatalities, but getting quite a lot of attention, public attention and international attention. And November is the most violent month. Bloody Sunday is uh, particularly dramatic. You have in the morning um, Michael Collins's intelligence um, uh, um, section within the IRA doing a very ruthless um, wiping out of um, around a dozen uh, British intelligence operatives. Uh, and then the retaliation to that, which takes place in the afternoon, is British uh, police and the army going into Croke Park, which is a, a sports ground uh, during a big game, and essentially opening fire um, in a kind of reckless way and killing another significant or similar kind of number of people. And then the day ends with a number of uh, three um, other people being um, essentially um, tortured to death in Dublin Castle. So it's a kind of horrific uh, uh, array of events. But actually, it's it's a good example of the link between um, the kind of the military struggle and the propaganda and the international elements. Because what what has happened really from mid nineteen twenty onwards is because policing um, has collapsed. The, the, the uh, what's essentially a civil police force, the Royal Irish Constabulary, just isn't able to deal with an insurrectionary force that doesn't wear uniforms and that can strike from almost anywhere they, they basically turn to i mean the, the british government labeled the ira terrorists but they turn to a kind of counter-terrorism and they raise these new essentially paramilitary forces the black and tans and the auxiliaries and then probably most problematically of all in ulster the protestant paramilitary force the ulster special constabulary and essentially the the, the strategy that, that that these forces engage in is very kind of um brutal they um, engage in what are called reprisals and that's essentially where a policeman or a soldier is shot essentially a kind of a collective punishment is is uh, carried out on a on the area where that takes place so we're talking about the, the, the in some cases the burning down of town centers like Balbriggan, quite a considerable part of, of cork city um wrecking of houses and so on the general kind of po- policy of counterterrorism. And there's an interesting letter from Michael Collins when he's kind of writing, I think it might be about Bloody Sunday, and he's saying well, there's going to be some crucifixion after this. But you get the sense he almost kind of relishes it because from a propaganda point of view, it, it's it's really valuable. Britain's kind of, you know, we're coming from the First World War where Britain is seen as, a, as the morally legitimate victor against the barbarians and the Huns and so on. And yet the way in which these events are being reported in Ireland internationally are really discrediting Britain. And that's that's very useful from a kind of propaganda point of view. 
also in terms of Ireland, uh, if if Irish people are being polarised by IRA and and black and tan um, violence, in a way that's useful for Republicans because they have to pick one side or the other. And uh, you know it's it's increasingly clear um, that um, that the that the British military forces and and the political presence of Britain and Ireland is kind of losing a kind of a moral um, legitimacy. So again, these probably aren't new problems, but I think they become this kind of uh, conflict, a kind of a kind of a anti-imperial insurrection. Th- th- there wasn't that much experience of it in, in the 20th century. It become very familiar after the Second World War. And the outcomes of these conflicts become very familiar. It's very hard as an occupying force to completely eliminate a kind of a well-organized um, um, uh, 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 anti-imperial or anti-colonial force. But a lot of this hadn't really happened uh, before. And so in some ways, it's quite distinctive what's happening in Ireland, this combination of the, the military and the political and the and, and the propaganda. Now, looking back on it, what did the Republicans accomplish and how was this new? I think we talked about that. It's new and it's a new kind of warfare. Yeah. So, I mean, you had seen guerrilla warfare, um, you know, before. Um aspects of the American Civil War, you know, involved quite irregular forms of conflict. And perhaps um, a closer example would be the um, the Boers and the, the South African Boers of the early 20th century, in which you had, you know, basically farmers with rifles and horses who could, you know, inflict quite a bit of pain on the British um, uh, uh, army. But I think what's unique about what's happening in Ireland, certainly distinctive anyway, is this combination of a kind of a a political claim to legitimacy using a democratic mandate and setting up a republican uh, government the sophistication of that claim to sovereignty and to legitimacy by for example sending revolutionary diplomats to set up embassies around the world mm. president de valera for example spends most of the war of independence actually in america where he kind of essentially poses as the president of ireland enormous crowds of people, particularly um, Irish people in America, you know, come to see. So you've got this incredibly sophisticated political um, campaign. Then you also have a very sophisticated propaganda campaign. So the the Irish government, revolutionary government set up, in practice, it doesn't do that much. But one of the things which it's really good at is Department of Publicity or Department of Propaganda. So, for example, they put out a newsletter reporting in quite factual terms what, what what's happening in Ireland, particularly the, the British kind of um, outrages, and that's being picked up, you know, by, by newspapers around the world. So you have this combination of politics, propaganda, guerrilla warfare, and then an actual claim to kind of political sovereignty. And I think, you know, again, as I was mentioning earlier, this becomes quite familiar to us post-Second World War. This is kind of how a lot of uh, anti-imperial or anti-colonial revolutionary fronts operate. But I, 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 I think it's quite distinctive um, in this time period. Now, looking back on it as well, um, how did the conflict end? And has it ended? <laughs> yeah, I just, I just, it just occurs to me, Rob, I didn't answer the second part of your question, which is very germane to that, which is, you know, did the did Republicans win or what did they achieve? And this is a kind of a glass, half full, glass, uh, half empty sort of situation here. And, and it relates to, there was a, a civil war between the IRA immediately after the treaty, which brought the War of Independence to an end. So essentially, um, the War of Independence is brought to an end by two different measures. One which takes place in 1920, while the war is still going on, is to partition Ireland. 
So essentially, the British government take the decision to to take off a, a big chunk of northeast Ulster, partition it, and to create a Northern Irish state, which will be under unionist political um, rule. And once you take unionists out of the equation, that then makes it a little bit more difficult for the British government to come to terms with the with, with Irish Republicans throughout the rest of the country. So that's the second phase of the political settlement, which happens in 1921. And that's the Anglo-Irish Treaty. And what the treaty does is it, it sets up uh, what's known as the Irish Free State, which is not a republic, crucially. It's not fully independent. It's a part of the British uh, Empire. It's technically, it's a dominion. Um, mm. And as far as many Republicans are concerned, that's a, that is not what they fought for. They fought for a republic, they fought for complete independence. And as part of the treaty, they have to, for example, swear an oath of allegiance uh, to the British crown. They're forced to remain a part of the British empire. And so one part of the Republican movement led by Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith basically says, this is enough, you know, we, we, we can take this deal. It gets the British soldiers out of Ireland. It gives us our own government. It gives us our own parliament. It gives us our own police force and army. And we can we can build on this to achieve full independence. And of course, in hindsight, they were correct. But this, you know, this couldn't be known at the time. The anti-treaty section of the IRA basically said, well, in all our history, we've never before accepted submission into the empire. You know, we, to, to, to do that would be a, a not just kind of politically a mistake, but kind of essentially immoral and it would lock us permanently into the into the empire um, and of course time has shown that they were wrong because the the, the 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 empire and this is where maybe the international context comes in again right at this post-war moment the british empire is turning into a new entity the british commonwealth so instead of basically this london london ruled empire it's, it's becoming a much less hierarchical more democratic uh, structure and by the 1930s it's clear that essentially if, if dominions want to leave uh, the Commonwealth, they they can do so, but you know because of the uncertainties at the time, essentially there was a civil war, and that was won by the pro-treaty faction, uh, and that and that led to Irish Free State, which which then did evolve to independence. So in terms of how that's remembered, it's interesting. We've been going through a decade of centenaries here in Ireland, um, remembering things like the Easter Rising and so on. And the, it, it was always known that the most difficult anniversaries would come towards the end of, of, of that decade. And I think the two most difficult issues, a lot of people thought the Civil War would be difficult and there may well be, that's that's coming down the line um, this summer. But the, the two most difficult issues in terms of kind of commemoration and commemoration generally has been pretty, it's been done pretty well, um, even though we're in fraught political times with, with, with what's going on in Brexit and so on. But the, the, the difficult issues have been commemoration of partition um, you know, Irish, the Irish government and Irish nationalists could commemorate the First World War, nationalists and unionists fighting together in the Western Front. Uh, they could even commemorate, um, you know, aspects of a British war service w- without much difficulty. But commemoration of partition it was much more difficult because in a sense it, it involves maybe giving a degree of legitimacy to, to the partition settlement. And so you had a controversy over that when the Irish president um, refused to attend a ceremony commemorating partition. The other issue which has caused a lot of difficulty with commemoration um, is actually commemoration of the police force that I was talking about, the Royal Irish Constabulary. Um, so there was a, a, an initial um, attempt to commemorate the Royal Irish Constabulary in the same way that, um, that it had been possible to commemorate, for example, 
uh, you know, Irish people who fought in the First World War or even police or soldiers who fought in 1916. And there was a big public backlash against the idea of commemorating the, or, the, the ORIC because essentially it meant commemorating forces like the Black and Tans and mm. the Auxiliaries. Mm. Um, and that caused quite a degree of um, controversy and embarrassment. And that commemoration actually didn't go ahead from, from in terms of a formal commemoration by the government, although a more kind of private um, uh, ceremony has recently taken place. I suppose the big elephant in the room here in terms of commemorating this period is how um, Brexit has put back into play issues which seem to belong to history. And of course, the most obvious of those issues is the um, the Irish border itself. You know, with, with, with EU membership, the board, the importance and significance of the border had essentially uh, dissolved. And now, remarkably, you know, pretty much 100 years after the border first came into place, um, customs posts are, are, are back as a subject of contestation and the border has become a, a living entity. So it's extremely unfortunate uh, timing, but, you know, an interesting issue for the for the historians to to think about and analyze. The book is called The Irish Revolution. A global history. Fergal, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. It was fascinating. Great. Thanks for having me, Rob. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, we travel further back in time to ancient Rome with author Lindsay Powell to discuss his books on the time period. Well, remember, I mean, don't forget, I mean, people like uh, Patton, I mean, were, were students of ancient history. And, and even Gattis, is it in Gattis, that the, 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 the current you know, great general uh, is also a classical scholar. Uh, and in fact, one of the books he carries with him is actually Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. That's next time. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.